Hey, this is Annie. And Samantha. And welcome to Stuff I Never Told You, a production of iHeartRadio. Before we get started into this, but I just want to share a very important fact. Samantha and I are wearing the exact same t-shirt. It's true. And we may or may not both not be wearing bras. Yes, that's also true. I have uh, <laughs> been flashing my uh, saggy boobies as I stand up. To well, go yeah, flashing might not be the best choice of words. Okay, that's true. Okay, so I'm still clothed. I'm not actually flashing, <laughs> flashing. It's just when I stand up, it's just very yes. obvious I'm not wearing a bra. Yes, yes, yes. Um, Yeah, we're wearing our uh, Atlanta Peachtree Road Race shirts, which uh, thanks to COVID um, was rescheduled into November and then turned into a virtual race. But we both got our shirts and we're matching today. And I will not be actually running. This is my celebration of pretending (laughs) like I I would have ran. So you're not even going to like pretend. I'm not even going to try. Look. I, we know last year's experience in which I gave up in general and decided I would just make it a celebration. A party of which, run. Yeah, yeah. I can't do that this year. And I'm like, oh, no. So <laughs> what I may do is take Peaches for a walk, but it definitely is not going to be a, a, a 10K. Yeah. I like how it also came with a, uh, this packet came with a Waffle House coupon. Yeah, it always does. It always does. But on the coupon, it said something like, swear that you run it. Or or else, <laughs> like, are you so look, threatening me, Waffle money. House? <laughs> look, we pay for it. Yeah. Stop it. Yeah, it's true. That's true. Um, yeah, so we are becoming one as podcasters, slowly but of surely. Course. Of course. Um, and then my question for you today is: Was there like a Disney movie or a particular fairy tale that you read as a kid that wasn't necessarily meant to be scary, but it really freaked you out? That's a good question. Well, you know what? Anything, the Sleeping Beauty uh, definitely got me, A, because she's not only in a coma, but it took someone, a stranger kissing her to wake her up, which by the way, what? Stop it. And then the uh, witch was so scary to me. Like her presence was so scary. And the eerie, like green aura that would be around her when she's trying to do spells, that Mm -hmm. scared me. Mm Mm-hmm. I... I remember going through, I was kind of a oddly coward um, when it came to Disney movies because I went through a period where Snow White really scared me. Um, Beauty and the Beast scared me. Uh, Cinderella scared me. Um, you know, Alice but, in Wonderland was kind of freaky. The Cheshire Cat really freaked me out. Yeah, no. I actually didn't rewatch Alice in Wonderland because it scared me so badly until recently. And I actually really liked it. Yeah. It had some funny jokes, in it, but it was still disturbing. I can see why. It definitely is dark. Yeah. Yeah. Um, when I got to middle school, I was really into fairy tales. And um, for my birthday, my dad got me this like really beautifully uh, printed, uh, like gold-paged book of fairy tales and it was you know the original fairy tales and i remember reading those and being horrified like oh my gosh right. they put on these feet these shoes and the mother has to dance until she burns to death this is terrifying yeah <laughs> yes um so we are talking about some terrifying takes on fairy tales today before we get into that i would like to say uh, apologies cuz neither of us had read this first um so i would say not Great for kids. Right. I think that was probably obvious, but I'll put that out there. And this episode maybe also listen to you before uh, kids listen to it and also probably not safe for work. Right. Um, and the book in general is in that category. Right. And of course, when we talk about old fairy tales, just to put that out there, there is some mention of abuse and assault. When you really yeah. think on it, and you're like, oh, <laughs> so, yeah. not that it, we go too detailed, but the book in itself does have some things that you have to kind of pause and be like, what What just, oh. Yeah, there so. are some upsetting themes. And I actually really like how it made me think about things like abuse and assault that are sort of not, they're sort of just played off as this is how it is in original fairy tales that you might have read as a kid and didn't think about it. Right. And this made me be like, oh, that was pretty messed up, wasn't it? Right. <laughs> Right. Yeah. So for today's book club, we are discussing Angela Carter's 1979 work, The Bloody Chamber and Other Stories. 
It's an anthology of 10 short stories of widely varying length. Like some of them are, you know, 20, 30 pages. One is one page. Um, and that's they, the one they, that's most disturbing to me. <laughs> that one is very, very upsetting, yeah. Uh, so the stories are The Bloody Chamber, The Courtship of Mr. Lion, The Tiger's Bride, Puss in Boots, The Earl King, The Snow Child, The Lady of the House of Love, The Werewolf, The Company of Wolves, and Wolf Alice. Many of these stories are closely related to fairy tales, and, and some of them you'll be like, oh, I know this, this fairy tale. Maybe not this version of it, right. but I know, like, the inspiration. Um, when it was first published in the UK, it won the Cheltenham Festival Literary Prize. Apologies if I mispronounced that. Um, Carter had written seven books previous to this one, but none of them had really received that much attention. Now, while these often, these fairy tales in this anthology often get described as feminist retellings of fairy tales, Carter described them this way. My intention was not to do versions, or as the American edition of the book said, horribly, adult fairy tales, but to extract the latent content from the traditional stories and to use it as beginnings of new ones. So these stories do have a, a largely gothic vibe, which we talked about a lot in our uh, Women Writing Horror. Um, many are highly sexual and erotic, detailing dark desires and impulses. Uh, most are told through a heterosexual um, female protagonist. Many are of these protagonists are, are vicious, smart, dangerous, and cunning. These stories often feel like a condemnation of the passivity of women in many of our fairy tales, equating passivity with death. Um, they are visceral and very, very descriptive and imaginative and often surreal and symbolic. She drew a lot of inspiration from 19th century poetry and 20th century French writers who deployed structuralism and surrealism in their works. Many of these short stories bleed into each other, or at least I felt like they did, especially like towards the end when it's right. all about wolves. Yeah. They yeah. were very, like, it seemed like they were retelling the same story in different contexts. Yeah, 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 yeah. Uh, for sure. Um, and I liked how you said bleed into each other because that's also yeah. a big <laughs> theme here. And we'll talk about <laughs> that later. Uh, so this book caused and continues to cause shock. I will attest to that. <laughs> and Carter knew this. She once said, quote, I was taking the latent content of this traditional story and using that. And the latent content is violently sexual. Yes, yes, very yeah. much so. Many critics and literary analysts comment on how she used fairy tales to couch real-world ideas and make them more palatable to a wider audience. In a letter to a friend of hers, Carter wrote, I really do believe that a fiction absolutely self-conscious of itself as a different form of human experience than reality, that is, not a logbook of events, can help to transform reality itself. Yeah, um... Yeah. So let's let's go. We're gonna do brief rundowns of these stories. Um, starting with the bloody chamber. Ooh. This story is reminiscent of the Bluebeard fairy tale by French author Charles Perrault, which followed a newlywed wife breaking her husband's rule, his like one rule about absolutely not entering a certain room in the mansion. And when she does, she discovers the bodies of his past wives. Uh, I, we've talked about this show on the show multiple times because it is very telling of certain things. Um, like, it is a tale of a woman's curiosity and the punishment for that curiosity that follows, like the story of Eve. The keys to the mansion are the keys to paradise, and the forbidden room is the forbidden fruit. Uh, one of the pornographic works that the narrator finds in Carter's work is called A Reproof of Curiosity, and it depicts a naked girl crying as she is whipped by masked men with knives, so being punished for her curiosity. Uh, others believe the room represents the dangers of giving birth at the time, a bloody womb claiming past wives or wives dying in childbirth. In Carter's story, an unnamed young and, quote, innocent, that word is used a lot, uh, female protagonist marries a man much older than her who is almost certainly inspired by Marquis de Sade, uh, where sadism comes from. Uh, if you want to know, that actually <laughs> uh, might tell you how this goes. Yes. Uh, the Marquis represents everything the narrator doesn't have, money, luxury, sex, but there are signs immediately and throughout uh, that all of this comes at a price. Like, the ruby choker he gives her that is described as, like, a slit throat uh, around her neck. Um, 
the Marquis wines and dines her, takes her to fancy opera shows, uh, and they are married, despite the reservations of her mother, the narrator's mother, who has lived a dang life, I've got to say. Yeah. Uh, so one of the quotes that might tell you a bit about this Marquis... I saw him watching me in the gilded mirrors with the assessing eye of a connoisseur. I'd never seen the sheer carnal avarice of lust. And yeah, the Marquis has had many past wives, all of whom had artistic and or feminine talents. He sort of collects women of talent and beauty, it seems. The narrator herself is an excellent pianist. The newlyweds make their way to the Marquis' mansion, where the narrator nervously awaits their first time having sex. She does find this book on sadomasochism. And when the Marquis walks in on her kind of being appalled by this, it turns him on. Uh, He views her as something innocent to corrupt. He pretty much says that to her. Um, So he takes them to their bedroom, which is essentially, it has like a wall of 12 mirrors. And they have sex, which is very much described in these violent terms, Mm -hmm. like impaling taking virginity, all all of this despite the protestations of the narrator that it's daylight. He says, all the better to see you with, which we recognize Mm -hmm. from fairy tales. Then the Marquis is called away for months and he gives her the keys to his mansion with strict instructions not to enter one specific room. But of course she enters it. Of course. And he Uh, also gives her the key. Yes, he gives her the key. But telling her not to go there. Exactly. Um, Of course she does. And she finds the bodies of the Marquis' previous wives and various implements of torture, dead um, Iron Maidens, racks. Um, She drops the key in blood and is unable to remove the, the stain from the key. And she touches it to her head and it leaves this red mark that she is also unable to remove. In her fear, she speaks with uh, a young man, Jean Yves, who came to tune the piano and stayed to to listen to her play. And it's like immediately clear that, oh, so they're a better match, I see. Um, So he returns early. The Marquis comes like as if he sensed what she's done or it's been a trap that he's just waiting for her to fall in. Uh, He comes back discovers that she disobeyed. Uh, He decrees that she is to be executed by beheading. Uh, Jean-Yves, powerless to help her, stays the night with her before her scheduled execution. Uh, The Marquis forces her to put on the ruby choker, and he removes her clothes, preparing to decapitate her with a sword. Now, in the Bluebeard fairy tale, the bride's brothers come to her rescue, but in the bloody chamber, it is her pistol-toting mother (laughs) who came to her daughter's aid after hearing her daughter's distress on the phone and embracing this feminine intuition and maternal instinct that told her something was wrong. The narrator and Jean-Yves get married, and they make use of the Marquis' wealth that was left to her. Um, They give a lot of their money to charities. They turn that castle into a school for the blind, and she opens a music school but the red mark remains. And yeah, this story is um, definitely a look at the dark side of S&M and all-consuming dangerous passion and its deadly hyper-masculinity in this sense. Uh, the male gaze represented and amplified by the 12 mirrors in the bedroom. He chooses her clothes. He controls when they have sex. Like, the male gaze is almost a character in itself in this. Right, right. And everything is definitely a trap. Um, I will say the mother, it reminded me of our episode of Noor Jahan, the empress yeah. that killed the tiger. Because they mentioned, the daughter yeah. mentions how her mom was so brave that she had killed tigers um, yeah. and, and was a known hunter for that. And so seeing her ride up in uh, the horse reminded her of her, what did, how, what did she call it? Indochina, something like yeah. that, mm-hmm. uh, era. And so I was like, wow, that's a wonder if that had anything to influence Carter's character of his mother. I wouldn't be surprised um, because I was looking at the inspirations for behind all of these fairy tales because most of them I recognized, but some of them I didn't. Right. I, I had and no what, idea about this when you had to tell me. I was like, what was that? <laughs> yeah, 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 yeah. I think I've only heard of this one because of this show because it is one that comes up a lot of like feminist uh, discussion about that yeah. fairy tale. But uh, a lot of the fairy tales were inspired by um, Indian 
fairy tales. Mm -hmm. So it would make sense to me, absolutely. But I thought that too. Mm -hmm. (laughs) Um, And then the next story is The Courtship of Mr. Lion, uh, which is very reminiscent of Beauty and the Beast. After Beauty's father not only fails to get her the single white rose, he also suffers car troubles in the snow. He trudges out to this huge gothic mansion, and when he goes to claim the knocker in the shape of a lion's head, of course, and that should have been kind of like a, oh, wait, hold on. (laughs) But the door opens for him mysteriously again. Oh, wait, hold on. Um, He makes himself at home, putting his coat and hat away, because, you know, who doesn't do that in a stranger's house? Um, He immediately is like, oh, yes. (laughs) Of course, this is what's supposed to happen. And uh, a big dog greets him, and he eats some sandwiches that just laid out, drinks some drinks, and is able to call for some help with his car. And feeling super at home, obviously, he's feeling very comfortable. And certain that the owner of the house must be kind and won't mind, because Sure. Uh, he takes the last beautiful white rose. Uh, not so good. No, no, no. The owner of the house reveals himself, an enraged lioness figure. He's furious this man took advantage of his hospitality and tried to steal from him. And in a panic, the man tries to explain that he just wanted this rose for his precious beauty and shows the beast a picture of her. Of course, the beast relents, agreeing to let the man go on the condition beauty has dinner with him obviously. So, of course, Beauty does, and the Beast aids her father in acquiring the wealth he lost after the death of his wife. Beauty is largely left alone during the day, hanging out with the dog, which, yes, we hear about the dog a lot, (laughs) reading books, but gradually she builds a relationship with the Beast, who one night after they speak for hours, he kisses her hand on a whim and is terrified. He allows her to leave. She's been allowed to leave after the first dinner, but stay while her father was away, and she returns to London with her father, promising Yes, making a promise that he she would return before winter is over. Uh, however, she kind of forgets because she's living that life, that glamorous <laughs> life, and and looking in the mirror, she all of a sudden remembers because she doesn't recognize the self who is overly confident and maybe a little bit egocentric because she has mm-hmm. now gotten accustomed to this wealth. And all of a sudden, the dog returns and pays her a visit, begging her to return to Mr. Lion. And she does so, realizing she broke that promise and finds him dying from heartbreak, of course. They mm. profess their loss to each other, and all of a sudden, he's a human. Yay! Happily ever after. Yeah? <laughs> yeah. <laughs> yeah. Um, I really liked this story. And I think purposefully, it did annoy me that her dad was like, she should have dinner with you. Like, she doesn't get any say in this thing. Like, the beast is like, only if, as though she's property, which at the time, pretty much so. Mm -hmm. Yeah. But there is, the next one is another take on Beauty and the Beast. It's called The Tiger's Bride. So after the narrator's, uh, the female narrator's father, uh, who is this drunken gambler, wages his daughter to a mysterious masked man known as Malord or the Beast uh, and loses, she is understandably furious. She's real mad. Uh, She destroys the white rose her father gives her with a sort of like, sorry, I bet you and lost, honey. Mm -hmm. She's like, "Uh (laughs) uh-huh. She is transported to his palazzo, the Beast palazzo, and he requests her presence. The mass beast claims he will allow her to leave with enough treasure to make up for everything her father lost if she strips herself naked. She laughs in his face and counter offers she will pull up her skirts in a dark room and gently cover the top half of her body and give him a window of time and then she will leave. Um, He seems hurt by her assumption and refuses this. She is tended to by a valet and a robot that looks like her and eventually discovers after the valet demands she view the beast naked that he is a tiger man similar to the stories she heard growing up. Uh, Emboldened when she realizes the beast is more terrified of her than she is of him, she willingly takes off her clothes for him, something she'd never done in front of a man Uh, The valet then informs her she is free to go, but the narrator decides to stay and sends the robot in her place. Uh, She and the beast undress, and he laps away her skin and transforms her into a tiger woman. So yeah, he licks her skin and like sloughs it off and reveals like this tiger fur underneath. Sort of a switcheroo on the original Beauty and the Beast ending we're familiar with. I will say that kind of disturbed me, the whole idea of someone licking off skin. 
So let's just let's just I believe it was probably meant to be disturbing. Yes, yes. <laughs> and I will say this next story kind of threw me off because it didn't fit in to me with the <laughs> yeah. other. Yeah. But maybe it's just me. Uh, no. So the next story is Puss in Boots. Uh, and this one is told from the point of view of Figaro, who is this raunchy feline trying to best serve his master. Uh, they live a pretty carefree life, making their money cheating at cars. That all changes when the young man, his master, falls in love with a woman kept in a tower by a greedy old man who views her as just another thing he owns which seems to be, again, a theme throughout. <laughs> she's usually hidden in a veil and heavy dress, and she's often accompanied by an old woman who acts as her keeper, which, by the way, is also another thing. There's a lot of keepers throughout. Yes. Mm-hmm. Um, and figure out believing this whole love thing would pass and their lives could go back to the, what they were if his master got some satisfaction, quote-unquote. Yeah. Uh, he arranges for them to meet up in the tower by posing as an exterminator, and the woman in the tower and the man have sex. Nice. However, the man is only more smitten and much to Figaro's annoyance. However, he also finds love with the tabby cat, obviously, that lives at the tower. And they all arrange for the miser's death. The man poses as the doctor and pronounces him dead. And when the old woman returns to the coroner to find him and the maiden having sex, the maiden banishes the old woman after giving her what was left to her in the will which was satisfactory, and there you go. Another happy ever, happily ever after. <laughs> Except for the miser, I suppose. <laughs> I guess so. He had what was coming to him. Yeah, yeah. I, I mean, the thing that makes this one so different than the rest of them is it is told from the point of view of a very raunchy cat. Right. So the tone is suddenly like, whoa. <laughs> right. You're like, what is happening? What is happening? Yeah, 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 yeah. Um, after that is the Earl King. This one is based on old folk tales around a sort of forest goblin or forest spirit. A woman ventures into the woods and becomes enamored with the Earl King, who seems to be the forest personified. Uh, his hair is like leaves, leaves fall out of it. Uh, he lives off the bounty of the forest. And he has cages of birds. Eventually, the woman realizes he plans to transform her into a bird and cage her. So... She strangles him with his own hair, and it doesn't really say, but her plan is to free the other birds from right. her cages. You don't actually know if she does that. This is her plan. Yeah. And then she's yeah. also realized all these other birds were other women that had been transformed into birds and that a lot of them had died. Yeah. Yeah, this is one where I, I love... This happens to me a lot when I watch horror movies where after it ends, I'm like, wait a minute. I need to look up, like, Wikipedia to see I understood that correctly. Right. She's going to turn into a bird. Okay, like, good. I, I got it. I got it. I got it. Well, part of the thing was, like, is all of this metaphor? Like, is she talking about a man or is she talking about an idea of a man? I'm very confused. Well, and I, like, that's another theme that comes up throughout is this idea of, like, the caged bird and can the, the songbird learn another song, mm-hmm. um, which I do think is uh, telling kind of commenting on uh, women in these stories. Can women learn another song? Can the caged bird be free? Uh, <laughs> I have these and other thoughts at the end. But, okay, that's we're about halfway through. So we're going to pause here for a quick break for a word from our sponsor. back. Thank you, sponsor. Uh, and we're going to talk about... This is the story that I think disturbed me the most. I think this is the point after my initial, what is happening with this book? I don't yeah. understand this first fairy tale was, what the hell is this book and what did I just read? Or what did I yeah. just hear? So this is The Snow Child. And it is the shortest of the stories within the book. And um, I may add, again, disturbing. Yeah, it's disturbing. It is disturbing, which uh, maybe a very loose version of Snow White, according to this research right. that I found. Um, and here we have a tale of a count and countess who went on a winter outing, came upon a pool of blood and a raven in the snow, and the count wishes for a child as white as snow. And then we see a young woman who appears in the exact description of what the count wanted. Within the story, he then starts giving the young girl, um, the young lady, different items off of the countess, who 
is not pleased to be losing all of her fancy items to this young girl. Um, and then coming across some flowers, the Countess requests for the young girl to pick a rose for her, um, in which he's like, yes, of course, I'm going to give you this one since I'm taking everything away from you. Yeah. I can't deny you this request, he says. Um, and then when the young girl goes to pick the rose, she dies because she touches the thorns, I guess. She turns into blood yeah. and the liquid melts, like kills her. She dies. And yeah. at this point, the count jumps off the horse, has sex with the corpse, and the body turns to a pool of blood and a feather and a rose. End. Yep. It's a page. <laughs> this all happens in a page, everybody. So I was like, what is happening (laughs) and of course this is also one of the moments where they call him say the word member his member and i was like oh god there it is yeah 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 yeah. (laughs) i mean it's such an interesting take on like because in like the disney version we all know you have the the evil queen who is like i don't want to lose all this stuff to a younger prettier version of me i don't want to lose the power i don't want to lose all of this and this was like a much more condensed violent, disturbing version. Right. It was kind of one of those moments of like, because I think it does end with the Countess just kind of looking. And yeah. I imagine her having a smirk and that was the end of the story. Yeah. <laughs> that, that's, yep. That seems about right. I mean, and, and again, stuff like this does make me be like, oh yeah, you know, maybe the original version wasn't as disturbing as that, but it was still pretty messed up. I mean, again, yes, for sure. She had to run away from someone and left with seven strange men. Yeah, 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 yeah. Yeah, and I mean, her stepmom tried to kill her with an apple. It, it's all... It's a thing. Also, the sleeping kiss. It's a thing, yeah. Keep putting her in coma. <laughs> um, after that was the Lady of the House of Love. I loved this one, too. Uh, this tale came from uh, Fairy Tale Sleeping Beauty and a radio program called Vampirella. Uh, here we have a new Nosferatu, um, the narrator, and she is a sad girl who just wants to love and she and her mute as they say in the story um there is some outdated language in these for sure <laughs> yes. um live together in an abandoned deserted village and when travelers come through the servant lures them to her home so she can feast on them enter an english virgin soldier who is biking through the town, which, by the way, this is happening during, like, World War One, I, I think. Yeah. Um, he is lured in, and we see that he has caused some conflict in the vampire's poor dead heart. <laughs> uh, when she pricks herself with a rose, shocked by the sight of her own blood she'd never seen, uh, the soldier kisses her wounds, and she is found dead the next day. And he kind of leaves unsure of what went down there. Yeah. Uh, and he goes back to war and is presumed dead. So I guess he remained a virgin the entire time and died. <laughs> well, that's fine. <laughs> yeah, I, that's what I'm assuming is like this one virginal character is like a man who goes off to war to die. And then it's kind of like, oh. Yeah. Um, I, I just liked this one for like how melancholy and lonely the vampire was. And kind of just like looking at all of her past vampires and yeah, just not, she wanted something more. Right. She was sad about having to eat everything. I will say that I think that one of the best parts about the uh, story was A, that she had killed the original Nosferatu mm-hmm. and became that herself, which I have not heard that as a version. Um, mm-hmm. And then as well as the fact that they talk about how everything looks glamorous in the dark, but when the morning came, it was yeah. all fake. Mm-hmm. And I was like, oh, interesting. Yeah. Yeah. Interesting. And it, like the description of her from the English soldier's perspective too yeah. is interesting because she's kind of like this mismatch of like looking really young and innocent except for her, like her mouth. Right. And her eyes. Like it was, I liked it. Dead, I liked dead, it. Dead, dead, dead. Um, so the last few stories are actually a variation of Little Red Riding Hood. And yes, they all involve wolves and werewolves. And this story is called The Werewolf. Um, and this story is a nice little tale of a well-prepared young girl who's off to take her ailing grandmother some oatcakes and treats. Which, by the way, when they kept saying oatcakes and jam, I was like, have I ever had that? That sounds really good. Because I hear <laughs> I this I throughout the story. That. That's a fairy tale type thing. It really is. It really Mm -hmm. is. With her trusty hunting knife, and you will hear throughout the story, or you will read throughout the story. I I listened to this, by the way. um, (laughs) How she knew how to use it. 
and was well prepared to use it. Um, she goes into the dangerous woods to see her grandmother. Here she encounters a wolf, which she quickly handles with her, again, trusty hunting knife and takes off the wolf's hand, which later turns into an old human hand with a ring on it. When she arrives to her grandmother's home, she finds her grandmother in bed in a lot of pain. And when she uncovers her grandmother, we are told she no longer has one of her hands. Oh, no. Ah! Uh, at which time the townspeople come through realizing that the grandmother is evil and take her out, essentially. Um, and while the young girl inherits all the grandmother's belongings and home and hey, she's really happy and rich. But was it true? <laughs> but was it true? <laughs> we may never know. <gasps> Um, and then the next one is the Company of Wolves. So this is another variation, but this time it is a love story and a tale within a tale. Fairy tale inception. Um, <laughs> we begin the story with the story of a witch cursing a wedding party to become wolves and having them come to her cabin to soothe her with their howls. And then we have another quick tale about a woman and her husband on her wedding night. He goes outside to relieve himself but doesn't return. So she marries another man, uh, this one who was not too embarrassed to use the chamber pot, she says, to pee inside, basically. <laughs> uh, she has a couple children with him, and they suddenly discover the old husband when he comes back, and he's furious that she remarried, so mad that he chews on her son's leg, and the new husband kills that man. And when she cries for the dead husband, he beats her. Completely normal. Uh, Completely I, normal. In these fairy tale worlds, I guess so. <laughs> um, then we move on to a young girl who is traveling to see her grandmother. She also has a hunting knife, um, and she meets a handsome young man who makes a bet with her to see who can get to her grandmother's house first. Him with his fancy compass, or her and her usual route. And the winner uh, gets a kiss, which I'm like, whatever. Um, anyway, that's me. Uh, well, you fast forward, he beats her there. Uh, turns out he's a wolf. Surprise, and eats the grandmother. And all, yeah, all the infamous lines are in this one. What big eyes you have, what big teeth, all that stuff. And he hides in the bed waiting for the young girl. The young girl arrives. Um, she walked as slowly as she could, so he would win. And finds a bit of the bloody remains in the fire and uh, the young man in the bed. She then hears howling around her in which he says, those are the voices of my brother's darling. Um, he moves forward and instead of eating her, they, the story ends with them sleeping together. This one also has one of my favorite lines when he, she's like, she laughs in his face and yeah. is like, you will not make meat out of me. Oof. Yeah. Get it, girl. Yes. Um, and then we come to the last story, Wolf Alice. And this is actually a very loose variation of Little Red Riding Hood, but also a take of um, Alice in Wonderland or more precisely through the looking glass. Um, and y'all, this one has it all. Wolf parents, a vampire, mean nuns, and a woman who was first raised by wolves and brought into, quote, civilized society, where we have a tale of a young girl who was discovered in the woods after her wolf mother, I mean, literal wolf, is yeah. shot. And they bring her into a convent where the nuns try to teach her social norms. When she's not very receptive, they decide to dump her at the doorstep of the scary duke who prowls yep. at night eating corpses. So, yep, yay. Uh, and she grows up there learning a bit more about humans and stays at the home where she takes care of the Duke. And while there, she discovers her own reflection in a mirror and she soon discovers a new friend. So she makes friends with this mirror image. Yeah. Later we see she learns that it is her in the mirror. And uh, after finding a bride's dress, I think it was behind the mirror, uh, which, by the way, was one of the corpses that the Duke ate. She puts it on and has a revelation of her feminine identity. Mm -hmm. uh, and later we see a mob that included the husband of the bride coming to kill the Duke, but sees the young girl and mistakes her for the ghost of the bride and decides yeah. to leave the Duke and the young girl alone. And they reside happily ever after. <laughs> we can assume. <laughs> Hard to say. Hard to say. I will also say this one features a lot about uh, menstruation and her getting her first period. Yes, the menses. Yeah, I'm figuring that out. So, you know, throw that into the ring with our scary yeah. menstruation stories. Because she cried and thought she was dying. And she was trying she to find all the cloth to clean herself up. Yep, yep. Um, so that was a whirlwind adventure of the, the 10 stories in this book. <laughs> um, but we do have some discussion about themes. But first, we have one more quick break for a word from our sponsor.
back. Thank you, sponsor. So obviously one of the big themes in these stories is sex and desire, particularly for women, um, women's pleasure, and like taboo areas a lot. But also like I was thinking about this and it's sort of the prism of what it can be and what it often is. Like because a lot of it is framed as something that's very violent and painful for women, and it's all about the man, all Mm -hmm. about the male gaze. But then some of it is absolutely like, you know what, werewolf dude? I do want to have sex with you. Or tiger dude, I do want to take my clothes off, and I feel empowered. And so it's interesting, because you do see just these different takes and angles on women's sexuality and desire and what it can look like and the expectations of it and what we see as taboo mm-hmm. when it comes to it. Mm-hmm. For sure. I think that she does a good job of also calling it what it is instead of just saying they had a night together. They had, she's like, no, he, he either, she enjoyed it or she didn't like it and it was this and it was a force and it wasn't that. And she didn't just kind of mince words. She just yeah. said what it was and then moved on, but made sure you understood exactly what happened. <laughs> yeah, and I think um, the Bloody Chamber, I really appreciated how it painted it as this thing that the narrator, who was very young, uh, had never had sex, and she was nervous about it, but looking forward to it, but was afraid to like admit she was looking forward to it, but also was like genuinely not sure what this was going to be. And the Marquis, who is, I mean, he's, it's all about him and his pleasure, and he doesn't care what pain comes from that, and probably that would make him get off even more, his pain. Um, like, one of the quotes from that, as they had sex for the first time, is, a dozen husbands impaled a dozen brides while the mewing gulls swung on invisible trapezes in the empty air outside. And it, it wasn't a pleasurable experience for her. No. And just the way it was kind of discussed of in terms of she was this innocent thing for him to corrupt. She was like a piece of property right. to him. And even her kind of recognizing that. Right. And she understanding that. Uh, I also thought it was interesting, once again, the usage of the word member. Yeah. Again, as well as the fact in the uh, Company of Wolves story where they describe when he undresses and reveals himself mm-hmm. and she's like, oh. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> yeah. I'm like, they didn't say the member here, but they sure did <laughs> mention they <implied> it. <laughs> that he was a beast, quote unquote. Yeah. Um, and yeah, I thought it was really kind of funny. I was like, all right, that's an interesting take on all of this, I guess. It's kind of very uh, romance novel-esque. <laughs> yeah. Well, and that too of like, Again, the original inspiration for these, which I, a lot of the versions we're familiar with have been very sanitized. But like she says, like uh, Carter says, there is this latent sexuality that, you know, as kids you might not pick up on, but it's just always there. Right. That it's a love story. And, you know, it might be with a beast. <laughs> um, and as a kid, you're not thinking about, like, the sex or, like, what does the woman want when it comes to that? But Right. Seeing it laid out this way, it did make me appreciate um, just how, especially that message of property, which comes up a lot lot. of like women being viewed as property and being passive, which again, she was really like, I think that is death Mm -hmm. for women in these stories. Um, There is also a lot of discussion of virginity. Like I, almost everyone probably uh, has something about like virginal, innocent, character who either gets corrupted in heavy quotes or never does and goes off to die in war. I was going to say, it was a nice little flip uh, for the lady of the House of Love. I don't know if I've heard many stories of the virginal man who came and disarmed the monster. (laughs) Um, Yeah, and I think that was, you know, just a commentary to you on We've talked about this a lot, but for the way we treat virginity historically and currently is so messed up. Yeah. Um, especially for, well, I know I want to say for everybody, but young girls, of like it, it makes them more valuable in this idea of property. Right. Or like wanting to be in a relationship with someone and you have these, in these stories, these 
beast mm-hmm. um, wanting to be with them for that purpose. Right. I mean, and, I definitely think it goes with the idea of ownership for sure. Like no one can really own you until they have put their dick in you, I guess, uh, essentially. Mm-hmm. And yeah. that's kind of the whole, because that's when when we look at the old traditions of young brides and being sold off for whatever property, what inheritance, whatever, whatnot, um, they often say, or you often hear the mentioning of, oh, she's still intact. Right. So she's never been owned before. She's completely yours and pure. It's just kind of like, ugh. Yeah. It's ugh. Yeah. And, and I mean, in a lot of these stories too, you see like, because uh, the father prior to that is seen as the owner. And so many times I was like, what jerk dad is just like, yeah, <laughs> have sure. dinner, beast, have dinner with my daughter. I'm sure I'll be fine. Or you like, you money? You're going to let me yeah, gamble? Cool, cool, cool. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> I will say, we perhaps didn't categorize that super well. I mean, it, it was like on a plate that said, eat me and drink me, which I personally would have been like, no thanks. But, You're right. <laughs> you know, there, yeah. <laughs> um, that That was something that I would just like get outraged at and I'm like this I know this is what this, this is, is doing and it's supposed to make me mad but I'm mad <laughs> this is this is bullshit <laughs> um, and then yeah there's a lot of talk of menstruation uh and and uh, yeah tying it to werewolves specifically which we did talk about with like ginger snaps and mm-hmm. sort of that whole you know once a month the full moon mm-hmm. uh the curse thing the curse yeah, 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 yeah. Yeah, and I, again, I do love their uh, blood tales and the uh, menses being mentioned specifically uh, to Wolf Alice and her becoming a woman. And it does definitely have this whole like transformation, but this terrified uh, confusion about what's happening to her as no one will tell her, no one talks to her. Um, right. And so it's kind of like, huh. That's an interesting look at her fear about why she thinks she might be dying. And then also because in her solitude, she's not really understanding what's happening, but she measures her menses by the moon. I did note that. And I was like, that is very interesting. Yeah. And I I mean, I love the whole, it's sad, but that she falls, she has friends with her reflection. And I was like, is this, you know, a message about, you know, we need to befriend ourselves. We need to learn from ourselves and, you know, care about ourselves. I don't know. A little more appreciate ourselves. (laughs) Yeah. Um, maybe that's me just reading too much into it. I don't know. But that's that's kind of our thing here. So I'm going to go with it. Um, then there's a lot of stuff about marriage. Uh, one quote from the Bloody Chamber. My husband, who was so much love, filled my bedroom with lilies until it looked like an embalming parlor. Mm-hmm. Um, so in this story, there's a lot of symbolism with the lilies representing death, rebirth, and sex, um, another object fetishized by the male gaze. Uh, and yeah, I, this was just another instance of me being, I've always thought it was weird how quickly people get married in these fairy tales. But the way it was painted, specifically in the bloody chamber of just almost like death yeah, for her. Yeah. It's spelled out death. Yeah, and talking about flowers, I think about the rose, the white rose, which is mentioned yeah. throughout all the story mm-hmm. as well. But it's kind of like the gift is like yeah. my the the representation of my love or, or for, for forgiveness, asking for forgiveness somehow. And mm-hmm. it's like, hmm, that's interesting. It has to be a white rose, so it has to be pure. It can't be. Yeah. But the thorns on it may kill you. The thorns? Watch out for those thorns. Those will kill you. Stop and smell the roses, but don't touch them. <laughs> um, yeah, I love in uh, the tiger, the tiger van, when she like rips apart his rose. Yeah. She's like, oh, you give me a rose to forgive the fact that you... Gambled me away. (laughs) No. See, I'm getting mad all over again. (laughs) (laughs) So I will say in the story, you don't really see a lot of conversations of anger. But in that story, so within all the the rest of the book, but in that story, you hear her anger talking about how angry she is about what her father has done and seeing him in visions and such and being like confused about whether she is seeing him for real and right. celebrating his new found riches because he sold me away, essentially. And then at the same time, yeah. like being bitter at not only him, but at the beast himself. Right, right. Yeah, because she kind of has that like mirror thing, right? Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. Yeah, that's mm-hmm. right. Um, then there's a lot, especially in the bloody chamber, uh, which I think is the longest one. 
Yeah. It has a lot of kind of religious iconography and like, so I mean, the Virgin Mary, that whole idea of innocence right there um, Mm -hmm. and kind of mocking that or corrupting that or like he, when the the Marquis finds her sort of horrified reading this porn, um, he says like, ooh, the nun has found the the Bible, like the holy books or Mm -hmm. whatever, the scripture and him seeing it as sort of like his right, he is God in this, her world. Mm -hmm. And it is his right to do with her as he pleases. Um, There's a lot of that kind of stuff going on. Yes. I was very creeped out by that. Um, Mm -hmm. And obviously (laughs) the patriarchy and women as property, (laughs) which is the same thing as the ownership. Uh, Yeah, we hear that throughout as they talk about the father and the husband and the male suitors referring to women as property. Which is again like even in that wolf story where the dude when she weeps over her ex husband who just got killed or first husband I guess because that was mm-hmm. not next and then he beats her because you know yeah. how dare you mourn something how dare you feel feelings mm-hmm. um, I thought that was very telling of the story of course that she she continues to bring that up as well as she flips it oftentimes by having ownership change from I own my own body and I give it, I'm giving it to you kind of yeah. mentality as well. Yeah. Yeah. Uh, yeah. I remember in the tiger, the tiger man one where she was like, no, I want this. Like yeah. I, no, she, he didn't ask her to take off her clothes. She was like, no, I am empowered here. He's the scared one. Right. Yeah. Yeah. Things like that. Um, and yeah, um, just the, the words used, like I remember in the Beauty and the Beast, the uh, courtship of Mr. Lion one, how he refers to her as my beauty, like mm-hmm. the dad does and mm-hmm. he does, which weirded me out. Mm-hmm. Um, yeah, waging the daughter away, offering the daughter for dinner. And, you know, it's takes on these because then the the woman in these stories does have agency and does make her choices, but that's still there, that element of, well... <laughs> yeah, he truly gave her permission. Like, well, you'll like it. It's kind of that weird thing. Um, and then you have the fairy tales and feminism, which critics have specifically talked about within these stories as well, because it is a flipping of an idea or, you know, a, a mockery of traditions, um, turning past fairy tales in their depiction as a passive damsel in distress and then pushing that away. I will say that one in which we see the beginning, the uh, werewolf, and the grandmother versus the daughter. And yeah. the conversation and the question was the grandmother versus the granddaughter, that the question was, was she actually a wolf? Or did the granddaughter just make this up to get her tail? So it's kind of like this right. weird taking on of the story. It's not, mm-hmm. she's, if she did, she definitely had a plan and she definitely got her to wish. <laughs> she got her grandma killed. <laughs> and she got her monies. Yeah, I mean, I read that one as like a... I read some people's interpretation was that was a tale of like women's ambition and getting ahead because that's the only way she could have gotten ahead in this world. Well, probably not the only way. It was a very dramatic way, but it was one of the only avenues available for her. Um, but speaking of, uh, something else people have pointed out is that these a lot of these stories do have uh, generations of women in them. Mm-hmm. And uh, that's pretty rare all the, you know, and, and the, a lot of times they are like the keeper versus the young maiden or mm-hmm. the grandmother versus the granddaughter. And I can see that as calling it to attention again that women are pitted against each other time and time. Time, a tale as old as time. And it's also that conversation of who's worth more, the younger generation. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Yeah. And then, yes, my whole idea about can a bird learn a new song, which that that line is from uh, Lady of the House of Love, the vampire one. Mm-hmm. Um, and I read a lot of essays on that of like, can women learn to be something other than what society deems appropriate for them? In these stories, can women be more than the passive damsel in distress? Can women learn a new song? Right. And according to the Lady of the House of Love, if you do learn something new, <laughs> you fall in love, you die. So there's that. I mean, that's the danger, right? It's like the awakening. <laughs> you swim too far out of that water. You're not coming back, ladies. Um, <laughs> then the whole idea of transformation, of corruption from young girl into sexual object of the male gaze with the ruby choker in the bloody chamber, um, turning into a tiger, a bird, a wolf, a snow to girl, like all these things. Right. Um, 
and how that often has to do with sex. Yes. Well, the very, the innocent, more innocent one with Wolf Alice is she becomes a woman and these like, she comes from being a complete beast to Mm -hmm. a young woman and then trying, finding that transformation in herself and trying to figure that out because the dude really has nothing to do with it. He's just the background. (laughs) (laughs) I know at first I was kind of like, what happened to that guy? I had to reread some like paragraphs like, oh, okay. Um. And that is a big theme, too, throughout, is, like, animal versus human. Uh, there are wolves, there's tigers, there's lions, and then sex with those animals and becoming those animals and having sex. Uh, and sort of this question of a sort of taboo things and desire and sexuality, but also what separates us from the animals. Right. And what happens when you're in nature. You become a bird mm-hmm. or you get attacked by nature. I love this because fairy tales at their heart are moral tales. Mm-hmm. And I love that you're, I mean, rightfully so, your takeaway is like stay inside forever. <laughs> Literally, don't go in the woods. <laughs> don't eat strange people's things. Don't assume their property and don't make deals with people. I mean, some of that's like really good advice though. So <laughs> if that's the message you took, I'm, I think the work here is done. <laughs> Learn my lessons. Yeah. Um, so that was our, our discussion on on the Bloody Chamber and other stories, um, which was it was really good for Halloween, I gotta say. Mm-hmm. Uh, and I did enjoy it. I did want to add in here because I recently I was texting Samantha and I uncovered two more movies for our menstruation horror episode that I forgot. One is Veronica, which some of you might remember. It took Netflix by storm a couple years ago. Right. It was a Spanish movie. It was called by some like the scariest movie of all time, which is a heavy label. I wouldn't go in expecting that. Right. But uh, it was really good. And it, it part of the plot does center on Veronica getting her period for the yeah. first time. Um, it's a kind of a poltergeist haunting tale. Demon and then The Other Lamb, which I had heard could be like the more feminist version of Midsommar, which again is a heavy label. But it's about like this uh, cult of all women that's led by this dude who uh where where the period is painted as something impure he like monitors when they have their periods and he won't have sex with you if you're on your period um anyway it's a really big part of the story so if you're interested in any more menstruation supernatural horror there's two more for you i mean a lot of people did write in say i didn't know this was a thing so oh It is absolutely a thing. Um, And if we've missed any of them, oh my gosh, please send them our way. Our email is stuffmediamomstuff at iheartmedia.com. You can find us on Instagram at stuffmomnevertoldyou or on Twitter at momstuffpodcast. Thanks as always to our super producer, Andrew Howard. And thanks to you for listening. Stuff I've Never Told You is a production of iHeartRadio. For more podcasts from iHeartRadio, visit the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you listen to your favorite shows. 